Well, hey, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors on staff, like Dustin said, if we've not met before. And we are starting a brand new series today called, And He Will Be Called. And it's an exciting series designed to help get our hearts ready for Christmas. Guys, can you believe that Christmas is just two weeks away? It's crazy. It's crazy to think how fast this year has gone by. But in this sermon series, this two-week series, we're going to prepare our hearts by looking at a passage of Scripture that a lot of us might be familiar with. It's a very famous passage of Scripture. I would argue, in fact, that it might be one of the most popular passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. Every year around Christmas time, families or churches, they take time to unpack what we're going to unpack today. And that is the verse found in the book of Isaiah in chapter 9. It's verse 6. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah 9, verse 6. And it's a verse that just unpacks exactly what we sang a minute ago. The names of God. The name that the prophet Isaiah received from God and shared with the people of Israel. And so what's going to happen is today we're going to look at the first two names given to the coming Messiah. And the next week, Pastor Dustin's coming back, and we're going to look at the second two names and unpack those. But I want to say this from start. This series, today specifically, uh, is going to be a reminder for a lot of people, a reminder of the truth found in Jesus. My prayer and belief and hope is that this will be a reminder that, again, begins to prepare our hearts for Christmas. And I'm also believing that this will be fresh and new for some people. There are some specific things that we're going to look at that might be a little bit different in how we've heard these names described in the past. But are you guys ready to jump in the Word today? Great. Because before we do, I'm going to ask a question. Let me ask this question. This question right here is a very important question, though. It's a question that, that I feel like has, has sparked debate. I shouldn't say feel like. I know it's sparked debate uh, in families. It's sparked debate in homes. This question that I'm going to ask is a serious question. People have strong opinions about it. And that question is this. When is it appropriate to start listening to Christmas music? Like, I'm serious. That's a serious question, right? It's a, it's a legitimate question. If you're like my wife, and if you're like my family, I mean, when Thanksgiving is over, I mean, Christmas music comes on. The second it starts getting cold outside, we hear Christmas song after Christmas song. Guys, I can only take so much Jingle Bell Rocks, okay? I can only take it so much. I'm more of a week before kind of guy. Now, I love, yes, thank you. I've got a first service. I got applause for that. Amen, all right? I felt like a curmudgeon in the last couple of services. I feel accepted in this service. This is my people. This is great. Now, I love Christmas. But what's interesting about this whole thing and me and Christmas music is it's kind of like I'm kind of a contradiction because my name is Nicholas. Santa Claus. Yeah. But it gets worse than that. Um, my middle name is Noel. Like legitimately. My name is Santa Claus Christmas. And I don't like Christmas music until the week before. So my family likes it so much that my daughter, Hazel, she's nine years old. She usually goes to bed every single night listening to worship music. Then I walked into her room last night, or it was not that, last night, to kind of check on her. And no joke, instead of worship music, rock around the Christmas trees playing around in the background. So that's my family. We're in full swing. We're in full Christmas mode at the Camacho house. A few weeks ago, we sat down with our younger kids, and we begin to discuss some of the gifts that they've written down on a list. 
Every year they put lists together, like I'm sure your kids do, or some adults in the rooms still, still write out their Christmas gift lists, some things they want. And what we do is we like, we like to talk about those gifts with our kids. You know, what are they wanting? Why are they wanting it? And what I realized is that every single year, there might be five gifts on a list, there might be 10 gifts on a list. If you're my daughter, Britton, there might be 35 gifts on a list. She doesn't get all of those. Um, but there's always one gift, and it's usually the big gift, right, that they want the most, right? Parents in the room, you know what I'm talking about. It's the big gift. It's the gaming system. It's the TV. If you're my kids, it's the puppy that they ask for every single Christmas. But there's one big gift that, that, we, that they want. And what do they say? Every single time you get to that big gift, they say this, it's without fail, they say this. They say, if I get this gift, I will never ask for anything else, anything ever again. They say that every single time, right? And then at least once, as parents, we fall for it, and we buy that gift, and then what happens? Within a few, within a few months, they stop, they stop playing with the gift, they stop watching the gift, and they stop feeding that puppy that they wanted so much, and it becomes your responsibility to feed that puppy. And so it's funny, but I say that to say this, that there is no gift, there is no gift that you could give or that I could give that would ever be enough. There's no gift that I could give or that you could give that will ever truly satisfy. It's, it's impossible for us to give a gift that would fully be able to satisfy and bring true fulfillment to people. And as I thought about that in light of this week's message, I begin to realize that that's not necessarily a bad thing. Think about it for a second. If there was a gift that I could give or that you could give that would fully satisfy, there would be no need for the gift of Jesus. There would be no need for Jesus. So I think it's important for us to draw that distinction from the start, as we prepare our hearts and our minds for Christmas, is that Jesus was a gift, and he's the gift that will ultimately satisfy, ultimately bring fulfillment, and there's nothing else that we could give that will ever, ever accomplish that. And I think that's the heart of what Isaiah is speaking about in Isaiah 9-6. Again, this very famous verse of Scripture. He says in Isaiah 9, 6, and if you have your Bibles, we'll look at it now. He's calling attention to this gift that will fully satisfy and a gift that will give us any, everything. And he says, for to us, a child is born. For to us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of peace. Not only are those words powerful, but they're beautiful words. And these words were written, some context, these words were written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. This was a prophecy. God gave the prophet Isaiah some insight. He imparted on him and to him the, the knowledge of the coming Messiah so that he could convey to the people what was in store for them in their future. And these words that you read in this verse could not have come at a better time for Israel. The Bible says in just a few verses before this one, 
in Isaiah chapter nine, verse two, that the people were walking in darkness. And, and that's because in large part, the Assyrians, which was the, the enemy of Israel, the world's superpower at the time, they were on Israel's doorstep in the north. They were getting ready to invade Israel, to take captives, to take prisoners, and to bring the nation to its knees. These people were in desperate need of a word of hope. You know, the holiday season for a lot of people could be a dark time. A holiday season could be a difficult time. It seems like the closer we get to Christmas for some people, the heavier our hearts get. Now, I heard a pastor say one time, he said that Christmas is the great amplifier of our feelings and emotions. And if you think about that for a second, how true are those words? We think about that in the positive sense. Christmas amplifies our desire to be in your family, our appreciation of family. But Christmas also amplifies the feeling of loneliness in some people. Christmas amplifies the feeling of joy and excitement, but also the feeling of sorrow and depression. It is the great amplifier. And when I look, when I look back on what Isaiah had said in, in Isaiah 9-6, Isaiah is saying this to a people that are in darkness. And what Isaiah is saying to these people is that hope is coming. And I don't know who needs to hear this today, but hope isn't coming. Hope is here. And hope's name is Jesus. And Jesus is the embodiment and definition of hope. And that's the truth. When we look at this, we have the gift of looking at Scripture with hindsight. We've heard that before. But when you read a verse like that in Scripture, on this side of history, and you're looking back at the gift that has already come, that we have access to, there's so much power in it. And it changes the dynamic and the meaning of the scripture because we have access to that hope. We have access to the gift that is Jesus. When we read this verse, we have the tendency to read this verse and to look at it like Isaiah is writing poetically and repeating himself, right? You look at the first opening line of this verse, it almost sounds like Isaiah is poetically writing when he says, for, us, for, for to us a child is born, for to us... A son is given. It almost sounds like he's repeating himself. But in fact, these are two very distinct and very different statements. When Isaiah says, for to us a child is born, Isaiah is referring to the physical birth of Jesus. He is saying, hey, a child will be born. But when Isaiah says a son will be given, Think about this, the son has always been. Since the beginning of time, the son has always been. So the son couldn't be born. A son had to be given. So Isaiah is painting this picture right here. And I think so many times when we look at this verse, we look over the significance of what Isaiah is saying. He's painting this perfect picture of the, of the duality that is Jesus. This 100% God uh, that, that, that is divine in nature that has to be given, but also this 100% man that will be born into our world and experience what we experienced. What he's saying here when we look at this is he's saying that a Savior is coming He's gonna be 100% man. He's gonna be 100% God. He's gonna be nothing, he's gonna be like nothing you've ever experienced before. He's not gonna be another man. 
He's not just going to be another good teacher, a good prophet, a good instructor, a great communicator, somebody that you could look up to. No, he's going to be supernatural in nature. And that's what Isaiah is alluding to in this. This gift that is coming is going to exceed all of our earthly expectations. So we look at the first name that Isaiah gives to this coming Messiah, that God imparts to Isaiah on this coming Messiah. This is what I want to say before I even give you that name. These aren't just titles or names. What Isaiah is saying is that this is the very nature of this gift that's coming. So this is more than just a name. It's more than just part of who he is. This is who he is. The first name is the Wonderful Counselor. The first name that Isaiah gives the coming Messiah, this gift, is he will be called a wonderful counselor. In Hebrew, the words used for wonderful counselor are the words pele ya'atz. Pele ya'atz. That's, that's the Hebrew phrase for wonderful counselor. Pele meaning wonderful, ya'atz meaning counselor. And when you think about the word ya'atz or counselor, Man, what do you think about? You think personal, right? I, I see a counselor. I've seen a counselor uh, monthly for many years. I love her, but she's awesome. There's no but. She's awesome. And every time we talk, I have to open up. I have to get personal to allow her to speak into my life, to allow her to impart wisdom into my life. A counselor's job is to speak into a situation, right? Provide wisdom, provide support, provide guidance, provide love, all of those things. That's the nature of a counselor. Very intimate, very personal, right? When we look at the word wonderful, though, I think the word wonderful, especially for us as Americans, has lost its significance and meaning. I think when we use the word wonderful so often, it has this cute feel to it. Like we say, oh, that, that food was wonderful. Oh, that movie I saw was so wonderful. Oh, that pastor shirt was wonderful. Um, no, my wife dressed me. But, but you say, like, like you say these things, it has this cute, cute meaning to it, wonderful. But that's not the, the application that Isaiah is associating when he uses this word. We look at this, the word Pele is only used 12 times, 12 times in, in the Old Testament. And in almost every occurrence that this word wonderful is used, it's always used to describe an event or an, an occurrence that was supernatural or miraculous. Always. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. In Exodus chapter 15, we see a passage of scripture that's referred to in, in, in the Bible as the song of the sea. It's known as the song of the sea. When you open up Exodus 15 and you start reading, you'll read an account of Israel that, that chronicled a, a song based off of the fact that they walked across the Red Sea. And as they walked across the Red Sea, once they got across, they looked back and they saw the Egyptian army get swallowed by the same sea that they just walked across on dry land. So that's what this reference, that's what, that's what uh, the Song of the Sea is referencing to. And then in verse 11 of that same chapter, what we see is we see the Israelites try to make sense of what they experienced in that moment. And they said this, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. That word wonders there is that word, palais. 
So when, you, when Isaiah uses the same word for wonderful, he's saying that this child is gonna be more than just something we will like or enjoy. He's going to be miraculous in nature. And when you pair that with counselor, he's saying his counsel is gonna be unmatched. His counsel is gonna be supernatural. You, you might wanna listen to his counsel because he's gonna be like nothing you've ever experienced before. The wisdom that he's gonna possess is like nothing you've ever known. He's gonna know everything. He's supernatural, past, present, and future. You know, I was on a flight not too long ago and I was headed up to see my mom. She lives in Oregon and the first leg of our flight had us going from Albuquerque to Denver. It's a short flight. I'm sure a lot of you have done that leg before of the flight. But, well, we were on our way uh, to the airport, get to the airport. I'm getting ready to get on the plane. I get on the plane. I sit down. I put my stuff away. And the pilot comes over the speaker, and he says, um, hey, me and the crew had just, we just came from Denver. I guess it was one of those flights that went back and forth. He said, we just came from Denver. And he said, on the way down, we experienced some pretty severe turbulence. It's pretty rough, uh, pretty rough. So that being said, I'm going to ask, because it's a short flight, I'm gonna ask everybody to stay seated with their seatbelts securely fastened for the duration of the flight. I'm like, okay, okay. So we, we take off, and um, as we're taking off, guess what I did? I got up, I started moving. No, I stayed seated for the duration of the flight I stayed seated for the duration of the flight with my seatbelt securely fastened. Why? Not just because the pilot told me to, but because the pilot had exclusive and specific knowledge about our future destination. And I think it's the same way with Jesus. Jesus can look at our lives, look at our situation, and he has specific and exclusive knowledge of where we're going and what it's going to take for us to get there. That's what makes him a miraculous, wonderful counselor. He knows what's ahead of us. The question isn't whether or not he knows. The question is whether or not we're going to listen. That's our responsibility. Are you going to listen to the counsel? that you receive from the supernatural counselor, the wonderful counselor that is Jesus. Now, I don't know if, I don't care if you've been a Christian in this room for 70 years or maybe a year or maybe you're not yet, but all of us can think back to a time, if you're me, you can think back to 20 times or 30 times when you tried to do things your own way. And in most of those stories, in most of those instances, they don't end well, right? They don't end well when we try to take our destiny, our future, our plans into our own hands. God is the wonderful counselor. He brought us, sent us the wonderful counselor. And so the reality is when we try to take things into our own hands, all we end up doing is wasting time and wasting energy. You see, the wonderful counselor said this. Jesus himself said these words. He said uh, in John chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, the thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and destroy. Then he said, I love this. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for his sheep. See, that's what the wonderful counsels, counselor's counsel leads to, a rich and satisfying life. That's how we best experience it. That's what God's wanting for each and every one of us, is to experience a rich and satisfying life. 
But in order to experience that satisfying life, we've got to do our part. And our part is to respond to the, the wonderful counselor in obedience as opposed to trying to force the issue and doing things our own way. Again, that responsibility is on us. See, there are three, three reasons I want to give you really quick that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Reason number one that Jesus is the wonderful or unwonderful counselor is that he knows what you need. Think about that for a second. He knows what you need. I know that sounds kind of simple, but Matthew 6, 8 says, for your father knows exactly what you need before you even ask him. He knows what you need. Now, you're never going to pick up the prayer hotline, the prayer phone, and, and, and call Jesus and, and say, God, I got a doozy for you. Try to figure this one out. You're never going to catch him on his heels. He's never going to be surprised by anything that you bring to him. He knows what we need. I think the conflict and problem, though, comes when what we need isn't what we want. And again, it goes back to this understanding of whose counsel are you going to listen to? I mean, this is not just for you. This is for me every single day of my life. What happens when what I want and what I need aren't the same thing? But I know what I need is coming from God and what I want is coming from me. What's my choice gonna be? The second reason why we know Jesus is a wonderful counselor is he identifies with your pain. Jesus identifies with our pain. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Did not sin. He's been tempted in every way. He's experienced everything that we have experienced. Everything we've done, everything we haven't done, every mistake, every bad choice, everything that we've experienced, God, Jesus, has experienced. Not only did he experience one of the most gruesome deaths you could possibly, physical deaths you could possibly experience, he bore the weight of sin and bore our sin and shame on the cross. And I know this is stuff that's so basic, but I think there's power in simplicity. And just like we're doing in this sermon series, we're reminding ourselves of the gift that is Jesus, but we're also reminding ourselves of some of the timeless biblical truths. He has experienced everything that we have experienced. The third reason he's a wonderful counselor is that he cares for you. Jesus cares for you. First Peter 5, 7 says, give all your worries and cares to God because he cares for you. And what I love about this is that he's not just a God that cares for you from a distance. He's not just a God that cares about you generally. He's a God that cares about you personally and intimately. The very things that we care about, Jesus cares about. And Jesus wants to be, and we see this in this verse, give all your worries and cares. Give all your worries. Jesus wants to be who we go to when we're going through something. Jesus wants to be who we go to when we need something. That's what he's saying. Give them to me. Hey, I got it. Give me your cares. Give me your concerns. I want to be where you go when you need something. Now, I'm not saying that, that we can't go to friends or counselors or, or other people, but I am saying if we do not go to Jesus, then all we're doing is selling ourselves short. That's all we're doing in the long run is selling ourselves short. We've got to be willing to go to Jesus because he is a wonderful counselor. Do you guys believe that today? 
that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. I'm just making sure you're with me. He's a wonderful counselor. He's personal. He's miraculous. He cares about us. I love the way Isaiah worded that. And the second name that Isaiah is given by God about the coming Messiah, this gift of a Messiah, is mighty God. Mighty God. It sounds so simple, but it's so powerful. The title, the name, mighty God. And remember, this is more than a name. It's the nature of Jesus, but it's also how you'll experience him. Isaiah is saying, you're going to experience this coming Messiah as a mighty God. You're going to experience him as almighty God. And then what do we see? When we fast forward to the birth of Jesus, you fast forward 700 years, and you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, what do we see? We see over and over again examples of Jesus' might, Jesus' power. I mean, you can, you can go through the New Testament and, and look at every single gospel and everything that he did, and you can see time and time again Jesus' might and power in action. You know, in Luke 5, for example, you'll see when Jesus is recruiting his disciples for the first time, you'll see um, he's going to the Sea of Galilee. Some of the disciples were there, and they had been fishing all night long, and they caught nothing, nothing at all. So it was a bad night of fishing. They're there. I'm sure they're grumpy. I'm sure the last thing they want to do is go fishing again. And Jesus says, hey, go ahead and cast your nets into the water one more time. Do it again. Just cast your nets again. So they reluctantly, they cast their nets into the water. And the Bible says that they ended up pulling up more fish than they could even manage to hold in the boat. And the boat almost sank. And the Bible says that the disciples were astonished in this moment. John 11, another perfect example of the might of Jesus. The most famous miracles that he ever performed, raising Lazarus from the dead. The whole chapter, pretty much, is, 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 is about this story. And we get this story of Jesus' friend, Lazarus, who, who had died. And he wasn't just dead. Like, he was really dead. Like, he was four days dead. Like, things were smelling bad. I'm sure things were, it was weird. Like, he was dead dead, right? And then Jesus comes after four days, and what? With his words, comes, tells him to come out of the tomb, brings him back to the life. That's the power and the might that is Jesus. And in Mark, another example is that the, when the disciples and Jesus, Jesus was teaching on one side of the Galilee after he got done teaching, he said, hey, let us go to the other side. Let's go to the other side. So the disciples and Jesus, they get into a boat and there's some other boats with them and they're on their way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. When a storm comes, the Bible says, a storm came. And it wasn't just like a simple storm. These were experienced fishermen. These guys lived on that sea. And yet they were terrified at this storm, the size of the storm, the, the seriousness of this moment. So terrified that they went and woke up a sleeping Jesus because they were so scared. And in Mark 4, verse 39 through 41, it says, Jesus, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died, died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? I love this. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. You see, Jesus has the power to command the storms. He has the power over nature. He has the power even over death. That's all very true. He's mighty. He's powerful. But that's not all that Isaiah is implying when he uses the words, mighty God. 
there's more there than just this general sense of might. There's more there than just the supernatural, uh, you know, a picture of, of a king that has dominion and authority over all things. No, there's something more there. And we can see it when you look at the original language. In Hebrew, the words El Gabor, El Gabor, uh, that's the name that Isaiah is using to describe this mighty God. In fact, El means God, and Gabor means, means mighty. So you got El Gabor. And when you look at the word Gabor, Gabor refers to a battlefield type of strength. You know, after defeating, here's an example of this, after defeating the city of Jericho, Israel, they're going into Canaan, going into the land that was promised, and then they, they defeat Jericho. They go on to a city called Ai, um, and they're, they're, they're gonna attack Ai. And what the Bible says in Joshua 8.3 is that Joshua rose with all the people of war to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 men, valiant warriors, and sent them out at night. That phrase, valiant warriors, is rooted in this word, Gabor. We see King David say in Psalm 24, 8, he said, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Again, mighty here is rooted, is the word Gabor. See, Jesus, or Isaiah, isn't just referring to a strong God. He's implying that he's a strong God that's mighty in battle. That's, that's the implication because of the word usage that Isaiah is, is painting. It's yes, hey, he's mighty, he's strong, but not just mighty and strong, he's also mighty and strong in battle. And when you think about that name that Isaiah is communicating to Israel and the significance of it, this God that's strong and mighty in battle, and you pair that with the personal, the intimate, the relational name, wonderful counselor, what we see is that Jesus is a powerful God who wants to fight our battles. Jesus is a powerful God who cares about the things we care about. He's a powerful God that will fight with us and at times fight for us. But yeah, I mean, you give God praise for that. It's so true. He's a powerful God, but yet he's so personal. And that's, that's, what, that's what Isaiah is painting, this, this complex, very deep, beautiful picture of the sovereignty, the majesty, the strength, but the, the, the relational nature of, of this coming Messiah. I think it's important for us to remember how powerful our God is, and I think at times we lose sight of that. I think at times we lose sight of God's might. We either lose sight of how mighty he is or we lose sight of how much he actually cares about the things we care about. It happens to us often. I think it's easy in this church service, if I could just be so bold and so honest, for us to applaud and say amen and clap when we hear our God is mighty. But what happens when life punches us in the mouth? What happens when life catches us on our heels? Do we still look at our problems with that same strength, that same courage, that same conviction? Do we still stand there and say our God is mighty? And I hope we do. But what I've seen and what I've been guilty of and experienced so many times in my life, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, is when I get knocked on my heels, I have the tendency sometimes, if I'm honest, to tell my small God about my big problems. I have a tendency to forget how mighty my God is. I have a tendency to forget how accessible and personal and caring he is. And I'll end up telling my small God about my big problems. 
And what I have to constantly remind myself of in those moments is that instead of telling my small God about my big problems, I've got to tell my small problems about my big God. I've got to tell my small problems that I serve a God who's big and mighty, but personal and accessible and cares about the very things that I care about. That's what I have to do. And I think that's why it's so important to go back and look at some of these names of God, names of Jesus, and really understand the meaning. That when life, that when, so when things happen in our lives and we face a difficult situation or a difficult circumstance, we can call to mind these biblical truths that stand the test of time, that our God is both personal and he's both, and he's powerful. You know, we, uh, we watched a movie this, this last weekend. Our kids, every year, it seems like we watch every Christmas movie imaginable, right? I'm sure a lot of families do that. And we sat down on, on Saturday, yesterday, to watch a Christmas movie. And I didn't wanna watch some of the Christmas movies that we normally watch, even though they're great, I've seen them a lot. I'm really not a curmudgeon. Um, but we, we were sitting down to watch a movie and we are trying to decide which movie to watch. And um, ended up picking a movie that might not be a Christmas movie. Um, it wasn't Die Hard, but it was, a, it was a movie that has some Christmas themes in it. And it was uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah, I mean, there's, like, there's some Christmas stuff in it. And it was um, C.S. Lewis, you know, based off of the books that he wrote. And it, it was a good movie. I forgot how good the movie was. But the movie reminded me of how good the books were. Like the books were incredible. I remember reading the books as a kid and being so fascinated with the books. I read them often. And as we were watching this movie, I was reminded of a quote that's not in the movies, but in the books. And it's a powerful quote. And it goes like this. Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. And as I was thinking about that quote, I thought it painted a perfect picture of who Jesus is safe. Not necessarily. But he is good. See, Jesus isn't safe because Jesus was a danger to his enemies. Jesus lived a countercultural life. If we wanted to live a safe life, we would live the life that the world wanted us to live. Jesus doesn't make our lives comfortable or predictable. Jesus isn't necessarily safe. If we're looking for comfortable, if we're looking just to come to church every single week and just check a box and then go, that's not what this life is about. Let me tell you, you're going to face some difficulties. In today's culture, you might face difficulties for even being a Christian or calling yourself a Christian. So I can't look at you and say that it's safe. But it is good. He is good. He's both powerful and he's personal. He's mighty and he's relational. That's the beauty of these names when we look at them paired together. Jesus cares about you. He cares about us, but he has dominion and authority over all things. He's a mighty God. He's a wonderful counselor. And he was a gift, a gift to mankind. 
You know, when I was a kid, in closing, I was a kid, I, uh, I struggled opening up presents in front of people. I, it's true, every Christmas we'd sit down and we'd, we'd open up presents and when it got my turn, got to my turn to open presents, I would feel my heart start racing when it came to, to open up my presents and it didn't matter what it was, it didn't matter who it was from. You know, I knew that grandma every year would give me clothes so, or, or, or an aunt or somebody would give me a gaming system but it didn't matter what it was, I'd always feel nervous. And my, my nerves came from not knowing how to respond to the gifts that I was given. Like I felt this, this pressure to respond the right way to the gift that was given to me. Am I gonna respond in a way that they feel like I really appreciate it? Am I doing the right things? Do I have to have the perfect smile? Do I have to have it all fit? What do I have to do? I felt this pressure. And I honestly think sometimes we do that with Jesus and the gift of Jesus. As we look at this gift of Jesus and we think that we have to have it all figured out. We think that we have to respond perfectly to the gift of Jesus. And what I just wanna tell somebody in this room today is to take that expectation off. Because our response to Jesus and the gift of Jesus is simply this. We need to accept this free gift that is Jesus with gratitude. And then we need to simply commit our lives to day by day becoming more like him. That's it. That's our response. All the other pressures of having things figured out, all the other responsibilities or things we put on ourselves, we need to cast off. Because they have nothing to do with us accepting this gift and receiving this gift. We just have to accept it with gratitude. And with every head bowed and eyes closed, I truly believe there are some people in this room that, that as I'm talking about this wonderful counselor, as I'm talking about this mighty God, yeah, all that might sound good, but you haven't yet made a decision for Jesus to be Lord of your life. And I'll just say this, that's where this starts. This starts with your decision to make Jesus king Lord and ruler over your life. As I was preparing for this message, I was believing in my heart that there are gonna be some people today that feel the stirring in this pool. And I was also believing in my heart that there are gonna be some people coming home today. Some people in this room that might have had a relationship with Jesus at one time, but because of life and decisions and they found themselves separated, I believe that today is your day for a new start and a new beginning. So without further delay, I'm gonna give people the opportunity to accept Jesus. All I'm gonna do is ask you to raise your hand. You can put it right back down. And I wanna include you in this closing prayer. If that's you on the count of three, just raise your hand. One, today's your day. Don't wait for tomorrow. Two, he's your wonderful counselor and he wants to be God and Lord over your life. Three, hands are going up all over this room. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. I see you up there in the balcony. Thank you. I see you over there. I think what's so important to remember is it doesn't matter if I see you. God sees you. Jesus sees you, sir, right here in the front. Jesus sees you. This is your day. This is your time to experience 
the wonderful counselor and the mighty God. Also, I know there, there are people as we're getting closer to the holidays whose hearts are heavy. We talked about this at the beginning of the message, but it seems like your hearts are heavy because maybe, maybe there's somebody that was with you last Christmas that's not with you this Christmas and you're not sure how to work through some of the feelings that you're feeling. I wanna pray over you too and I wanna pray that Jesus gives you the supernatural sense of hope and peace. And I wanna remind you that he is your wonderful counselor who cares about you, who is ready to, to, to carry the weight for you, but also he's a mighty God that has authority over the sorrow and over the pain that you feel today. Heavenly Father, Jesus, God, we're in awe of who you are. We're thankful for who you are, God. God, we're thankful for all that you've done, Jesus. We're thankful for the truths in your word. God, we're thankful that you give us an opportunity, God, to just come before you and lay our problems, lay our, our, our issues at your feet, Jesus, as our wonderful counselor, God. We're thankful today that you have authority over the things that we deal with, God, that you are a mighty God who's strong in battle and willing to fight for us, Jesus. God, our prayer, Jesus, is for those that accepted Christ today that this is a new start, a new direction, a beginning, Jesus, of a new chapter, a new season, built on a life that's based on a relationship with you, God. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen.